Father, your word contains all wisdom and knowledge that is necessary for life and godliness in this world while we exist here. I would ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, infuse in us not just the word, but the understanding that comes along with it. How we are supposed to walk in your ways, in the ways of light in a world that is dark. I pray that you would help us in and of ourselves not to be offensive when we learn truth and communicate it to others, but we do also understand that the truth is offensive. And help us to, when we speak to others, do this with gentleness and respect, but nonetheless, help us to do it. Help us to, help us to speak. Help us to communicate your plan for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Melchizedek, if you have a Bible, electronic Bible, or hopefully it can go up on the screen, we'll see. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, we are introduced to this character, Melchizedek, and he's kind of mysterious. Because we know that later on, you have the Mosaic law that comes down and in that mosaic law there were priests and those priests come from the line of Moses and Aaron they were from the line of the Levites the tribe of Levi and of course Aaron was the first high priest and his sons would have inherited the priesthood once Aaron died and that and it would stay in the family like that and the rest of the Levites they would help with the ministering in the tabernacle and also eventually in the temple and today in Israel they are training people that they think are of the Levitical priesthood or the Levitical line uh, and there are certain names that they uh, attach to that like the name Cohen they think the name Cohen was attached to the tribe of Levi and there's a couple other names that they associate with that and so they're rounding up the Jews of that line and training them in the ways of the temple because they fully plan on instituting the temple sacrifice in the future but here we have a battle in verse 8 that takes place in the Old Testament and it involves Abraham and his nephew Lot in chapter 14 verse 8 it says then the king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah the king of Adma the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela that is Zoar marched out and drew up their battle line in the valley of Siddim against Kedileomer king of Elam Tidal the king of Goim Amraphel king of Shinar and Arioch king of Eleser four kings against five and so these kings would often battle. They would go back and forth and they would try to take over the cities and take all the, the loot that was in the cities, all the animals, and they would kill all the men and take the wives and children and make them their own. Now, during this battle, Lot was taken captive. In verse 14, it says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out, the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So it could have been that Abraham had tons of people with him. He could have had up to a thousand people with him, but the men that were trained 
were 318. Those would have been men of military age, able to wield the sword. It doesn't count the children and the women. So there could have been 300 children and 300 women as well. We just know there was a lot of people there. So Abram takes off and he decides to get back Lot and the possessions. In verse 17, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Cato-Leomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then, here he is, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he is blessed, Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. And so here we have the appearance of Melchizedek. He is king of Salem, which is probably king of Jerusalem. Where is Jesus' seat, his throne, going to be? It's going to be in Jerusalem. And we know other things about this individual. Five times we are told that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. Several times it's listed. And in Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to flip over there real quick, because I'm going to make a point in this chapter, we have Melchizedek, and he's called, in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7, he is called the king of Salem and a priest of God most high. Now, two of the things that we recognize is Jesus a priest. He is. He is our great high priest. Is Jesus a king? Yes, he is also a king. Now, as I was discussing this last week, is Jesus a prophet? Of course, he's a prophet. Is Melchizedek a prophet? Well, uh, maybe. We really don't know. Could be, but he has two of the attributes that Jesus has. Jesus being the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, deity in human form. And so, first, his name means king of righteousness, which is a noun. Is Jesus righteous? The answer is yes. Is he the king of righteousness? Well, you could easily say that he is, yes, if you know the scriptures. Then he's also king of Salem, and it means king of peace. All of these things can be applied to Jesus. He is the supreme one when it comes to peace. He is the supreme one when it comes to being the king of Jerusalem or the king of Salem. Now, he is without father or mother. Now, we do know that Jesus had an earthly mother, but Melchizedek, it doesn't list his father or mother. He's without genealogy. You can't trace back his origin. You know, Jesus shows up. He, he existed before humankind was ever on the earth and then without beginning of days or end of life well that's certainly a characteristic of Jesus he's always existed he's always been here so to speak just decided to take the omnipotent omniscient omnipresent God and put him in this body and he's going to be in that body forever but he had no beginning and this is the characteristic that is presented about Melchizedek. And it says, he's like the son of God. He remains a priest forever. Will Jesus be a priest forever? Yes. He will always be a priest. So you see the parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. It's like, wow, they're, they're so similar. Maybe 
Melchizedek is Jesus. And as far as being the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, is a prince the same as a king? Well, a prince is a forerunner to the king. It's the son of the father who is the king. And all authority has been given to Jesus Christ, so maybe this is just referring to him as a position of sonship, that all the authority is going to be given to him to judge, and all the authority is going to be given to him to create peace, so to speak. So we see he is the Prince of Peace. And also in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, we have this as it reads, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek or Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, the line of the Levites, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So it appears that nobody, because of a law, appointed Melchizedek to be a priest. Nobody, because of a law, appointed Jesus Christ to be a priest. You see, the similarities just continue all the way down. And there are people who are adamant that will say Melchizedek is an Old Testament theophany or Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He has no beginning or end. He's the prince of Salem or prince of Jerusalem. He's the prince of peace. He has no genealogy, no father and mother. And you look at that and you go, wow, it could easily be Jesus Christ. Well, does that mean he served for a while on earth as a priest and he's still around today? Because, you know, if he's perfect, if he's Jesus, he doesn't die. Well, no, that that wouldn't seem to comport with scriptures. It seems that he had to come to earth and be born. Now, he could manifest himself as a human being, and he did that, appearing to Abraham. That's a Christophany in the Old Testament, and it happened also in the book of Judges. And Jesus shows up several different times walking around and talking and communing, whether it's with Adam or Moses or Abram, Abraham, Jesus shows up. So Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the, the scriptures are just sprinkled with this idea that Jesus comes after the order of Melchizedek. Now I think that there's really two things that you could point to to say that Jesus is not Melchizedek. And that first one is, he has no father or mother. We know that Jesus has a father and he's had a father forever. There's no time that he hasn't had a father. So that's the first clue. And you would say, no father or mother. Well, how do you get birthed if you have no father or mother? And Melchizedek, he appears to be a man, right? But there is one more thing in Hebrews chapter 7. It's a good four-letter word, and it's in verse 3. It's like the Son of God. That like is a similitude. A similitude is not literal. So if you're interpreting this properly, he's like the Son of God. He is not the son of God. So I'll leave you with that. You may disagree and you may say, no, he was definitely, that was Jesus. Okay, that's great. Let's move on. Now, uh, yesterday, 
I work most Saturdays, and yesterday I was building a deck for a homeowner, and the homeowner wanted to come out and talk with me a little bit, just chit-chat, how things going, how, how's the deck progressing, you know, what are you going to do, and just several questions out there. And then the person I could tell just wanted to talk. Now, I don't know about the rest of you men or women in here. If you're working and you're focused and you have something to do, something to get accomplished, somebody wants to come up and talk. What do you do? Now, I've had this happen a couple of times. And so first, I'm, I'm kind of close to the person and they're talking to me. And I kind of move over to the other side of the deck and I'm paying attention and I start fiddling with the deck, you know, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking and everything's going fine and I'm trying not to be rude. And after that, I get this sense and sometimes you guys will get this, this sense of stop what you're doing. I just... I want to continue doing, I'm focused here. I want to continue doing what I'm doing. And it came to me again. Now I know what it was. It was the Holy Spirit saying, you need to stop and listen and focus. And so I put down what's in my hands and I just sit there. I'm sitting on the trusses of the deck and I'm, I'm just focusing on the person. And I get this other sense, get up and go to the other side of the deck next to the person. Okay, you know, so I, I get up, I go to the other side of the deck, and I sit down for a second, and then I feel like, no, stand up. Okay, I'm standing up, and I'm listening. And this person starts communicating dissatisfaction. This person is not a believer. It started communicating dissatisfaction about certain things in life and people and all of that. And I, I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm supposed to witness to this person. And they're not talking about God or anything else. And so I'm looking for a segue. How am I going to turn this conversation to God? Now, just a little parenthetical thought here. I don't tell you about these encounters so I can pat myself on the back. I tell you about these encounters because I want to encourage you to do the same thing. And I want to give you examples of how to do this, how to talk to somebody that is out there. So I digress. I'm standing there and I'm listening to what this person is saying about other people and just some not good things, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to turn into the realm of gossip if I just continue with this. And so I decided to interject a little Bible. Now, this person knows that I'm a Christian and they know that I'm a pastor. And so I said, you know, when that happens to me and I want to complain, a couple of things come to mind. I said, there is a proverb in the New Testament. I said, it's in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And I tried not to be offensive with the truth because it was pointing out that they're complaining. And so we talk a little more and I said... What I tend to do is when I want to complain about somebody else, I focus on myself and my failings and how unrighteous I am or how sinful I am. And I get that view in mind and then I have a tendency to have grace and mercy for other people, I said, because we're all the same. 
And as I was talking to this person, I said, you know, we're all fallen. And this person admitted, yeah, they've, you know, they're, there are a lot of bad things that they have done and, and it's just not good. I said, exactly. We're, we're all like that. And I said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. And so it's segueing into the gospel. I said, have you ever told a lie? And they looked at me and they said, well, yes, I have. And I said, have you ever stolen anything? And she said, yes, I have. I said, so let me get this straight. What do you call a person that lies? And this person responded, a liar. I said, what do you call a person that steals? And this person responded, a thief. I said, so, okay, I want just clarity here. By your own admission, you are a lying thief. (laughs) And, you know, that could be offensive. The truth can be offensive. And they said, well, yes, I am. I said, and so am I, and so is everyone else. And so I segued into this idea of sin. I said, we're all sinners. And at first it was a little choppy getting the gospel out. But I got them because it, it just kind of went back and forth. But I got the gospel out. And I encouraged this person. I said, look, there's only two places. There's heaven and there's hell. And we're going to go to one or the other. And there is no purgatory. That is a made up doctrine by men. It's not in the Bible. And then, of course, the the final response, or not the final response, but one of the responses was, well, you know, people, they have all their interpretations of the Bible. And I said, well, yeah, they do. And most of them can be wrong. And I know this person's uh, parent, and the parent is against organized religion. And I said, your parent is not against organized religion. Your parents is against the idea of these bad churches and bad pastors. They look at that and they can't stand it. But she goes, well, I'm not really religious. And I said, let me define religion for you. Religion, pure and undefiled, is ministering to the widows and orphans in their time of need. I said, that's what religion is. I'm not talking about that. I was talking about a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And they kind of didn't grab hold of the concept of that after repeating it a couple of times. But I continued... And I said, you need to ask Jesus to save you. And I said, if you just call out to him and say, Jesus, save me. I said, do you pray? And the person said, well, yes. And she goes, I I don't like to show favoritism. So when I pray, I just pray to God or Jesus or Allah or whoever's up there. And I, I said, okay, I want to tell you something about Allah. Allah is a false God. Allah will tell men to beat their wives. Allah will say to kill anybody who doesn't become a Muslim or they have to become a slave. And, and I told her all that. I said, don't pray to Allah. Now, you can pray to Jesus. She goes, well, do I pray to Jesus or do I pray to God? I said, either one. It doesn't matter. He knows what you're doing. And, you know, the person is... How do I say it? It's kind of as green as can be knowing what scripture says and what it doesn't say. And again, I'm telling you all this to give you some hope that you can do this same thing. And so it's this person's deck that I'm working on. And by this time, it's about an hour and a half. And I look at the deck, you know, I just go, okay. It turned out to be about four hours that I sat there with the individual and before we, we actually sat down 
And this individual, when I said, you need to pray to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior so that you can live forever in heaven. And you could tell they started shuffling their feet and they looked down and, and didn't want to be offensive. And this person said, well, you know, I just have a problem. And she started talking about an uncle who had passed away that was gay. And I said, well, and the question came up kind of like, well, what about this gay person and, and the church? And this person was opposed by the church. And I go, okay, this is going to be even a longer conversation than I thought. So I said, all right, can I get my water and can we go sit down? And I want to explain this to you. So what I did is I, I laid a foundation. I said, how do you determine what right and wrong is? And the person said, well, my parents basically told me what right and wrong is. I said, okay, where'd they get it from? This person said, well, probably from their parents. I said, okay, and where did they get it from? And I said, what you're saying is people decide what right and wrong is. I said, now, if you know anything about history, if you look at Pol Pot, if you look at Hitler, if you look at Mussolini, if you look at Stalin, if you look at Lenin, there have been over 100 million people killed because of communism in the world. And that's because people were determining what right and wrong was. And they kind of saw that. They go, oh, yeah, okay. I said, truth, which can be offensive, and morality has to be transcended because we cannot determine in and amongst ourselves what right and wrong is. It has to be a standard that is above us. I said, it's like the laws that govern the universe. And you've heard me talk about this before. We did not create calculus. We did not create algebra or trigonometry or the laws that govern the universe in physics. Force equals mass times acceleration or E uh, equals MC squared. And of course, they use that to get to the moon or get to the other planets. and, And it works for them. I said, we did not invent those. We discovered them. That truth has always been here. Same thing with morality. That truth has always been here. And I said, do you believe in absolute truth? And this person thought about it for a second and said, no. And I said, do you believe that absolutely? And all of a sudden, you see the light go on. Like, well, if I say yes, then I believe in absolute truth. And if she would have responded, no, I say, well, you're a relativist then. Do you believe that truth is relative? Do you believe that relatively, that that can change? Which you're stuck. It's a conundrum. So you have to defer back to there is absolute truth. And I was able to do that, to get back to that point, and they agreed. I said, now, if there is a God, and he says, This is good. I said, like praying. If God says to pray, do you think you should pray? Yes. They agreed. Should pray. I said, well, if God said being greedy is wrong, and it's always wrong, would you agree that we should not be greedy? And of course, you know, those conversations that take place in and amongst us. And I said, yes, that that would be good. I said, well, if God said don't be sexually immoral, should you not be sexually immoral? And then you could see the shift. The shift was, but I loved my uncle. And he was derided by the church. That's my word. They didn't use that word. 
and shunned by the church. I said, I, I want to make something clear that there are churches that teach bad things and have bad practices. I said, when it comes to the homosexual, God loves the homosexual and wants them saved. He wants them to get the gospel just like anyone else. Just like somebody who's a drunkard, just like somebody who's a murderer, just like somebody who's a thief. And that's what some of us who believe in Christ were. That's scripture. I was given her scripture at the same time. And they just couldn't make the connection that that means she would have to call her uncle sinful. And what's wrong with that? And they made the point, what's the difference between two men that love each other and want to have a relationship and heterosexuals who are in a relationship and they're just as bad committing adultery or their sexual immorality? And I said, you're right. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it includes the sexually immoral, the adulterer, and also the homosexual offender. I said, all of those are wrong according to God. And I actually read the scripture, brought it up on my phone. Still could not make the connection. Wouldn't make the connection. So that took about four hours. But I left, and it, this person ended up coming out a couple more times, and so I only got about four hours of work done in the whole day but I wanted to make sure they understood what the gospel was and this is an encouragement to you so what I was dealing with was ethics biblical sound ethics I was communicating to that somebody who was not familiar with biblical ethics now when it comes to biblical ethics there are all kinds of subjects that fall under this umbrella one is euthanasia, uh, one that's like it, assisted suicide. What about war? Do you think there are wars and rumors of wars going on right now? <laughs> Just open up the news on your phone. I mean, it's in Israel, it's in Ukraine, it's in Africa, it's in South America. I mean, there are wars and rumors of wars everywhere. China's going to invade Taiwan probably before the election. At least that's their plan. We don't know if they are or not, but they're certainly gearing up for it, you can tell. And so war, is it ever okay to go to war? Do you believe in pacifism? That you don't even own a gun? That you don't kill anybody for any reason? Or what about capital punishment? You know, there's this guy, Kenneth Eugene Smith, who was executed by nitrogen hypoxia in Alabama this last week on Thursday. That's another way. And so it's in the news. It's contemporary. We have wars and rumors of wars. That's contemporary. We have euthanasia and uh, assisted suicide. There's an article about that. And then there's abortion and homelessness and the sexualization of kids. And how do we take the Bible and put it into these biblical ethical issues? How are we supposed to deal with those? And that's where my desire to communicate the Bible and help us infuse it into the culture. Where we have to start calling things evil and bad. And the truth is offensive. I saw this little clip where somebody wanted to be called a man who was a woman and it was at a some meeting in some building and somebody was recording it and the person would not relent said he and the person started yelling 
no, she, and the person started yelling, he, and then people in the crowd started standing up, taking off their masks, and yelling back at the person saying, she, and it was just erupting in a volcano, you know, it was just ridiculous, so what are we supposed to do with that? If somebody comes along and says, I'm a woman, and, and their voice is like two octaves below, do you capitulate or acquiesce to that and call them by their preferred pronouns if you see somebody who lists their pronouns for me that's a red flag you know if they if they want to be called by a different pronoun zzz or whatever it might be i mean they're making different pronouns up how do we do this as christians in our culture still be relevant but not shy away from possibly bringing an offense while not purposely trying to be offensive how do we communicate this stuff that is biblical ethics that is what we have to be knowledgeable in that is what we have to communicate to others now does anybody do it perfectly nope no one does do you get better after doing it over and over yeah practice makes perfect quote unquote you guys have heard that little axiom And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some of these things. I may not make it all the way through even one of them, but I want to give you insight how to live a life in a world that is full of darkness, is decaying, and it's going to be judged, and you're supposed to be a light in the world. Now, I don't think all of you know, but Papa Joe had a massive stroke, and he is in the hospital and they induced a coma, and it does not look promising uh, where he is right now. And I think that, and I'm not sure of his condition. I, I know he's not conscious, so to speak, at least that was the case yesterday. And it may turn out that he doesn't survive, or if he does survive, it could be the case that he has to be taken care of he could be in a perpetual vegetative state. We don't know if they take out a breathing apparatus that he will continue to breathe on his own. I, I don't know what kind of state he is in. But with that comes up this idea of euthanasia. Euthanasia and assisted suicide, they kind of go hand in hand. I don't know what kind of decision the family will end up making for Papa Joe or if he recovers, if he doesn't recover. I don't know any of that. But I'm going to use that as a way that we might be informed as what to do because the culture is going the wrong direction when it comes to euthanasia and assisted suicide. There seems to be a move in the world to decrease the population. Have you noticed that? Have you seen that in the news? And, and there are, I believe, nefarious characters who would love to carry that out. The WEF has been right out up front saying we have to reduce the population. How do you do that? Well, you stop farming. Have you guys seen the protests in Europe and the United States about farming and getting rid of cows? And you, you, The latest one that I read a couple of weeks ago? was they want to get rid of rice production because you flood the fields and all those weeds underneath the water, they decompose and produce methane. And rice is one of the main staples throughout all the world. 
And so they need to stop rice production because climate change, we're all going to die because of climate change and the methane buildup. You can't make this stuff up. Well, maybe they are making it up. I don't know. But you read that and you go, you've got to be kidding me. If you got rid of rice in the world, how many people are going to die? Have you seen the farmers in France and the Netherlands? They're taking over the freeways. They're taking manure from the, the field and they're spraying it all over the Capitol building. And there's just thousands and thousands of people that are going into the streets saying, you need to stop there. There is a pushback. I don't know what news you read, but there's a huge pushback on this. And I think the elites are a little frightened about this pushback. So how do you conduct yourself as a Christian? As a Christian, do you take a wheelbarrow full of cow manure and drop it off at your local government office right in front of the door? Is that what you do? How do you handle this? You you see the problem we're up against? We're supposed to be a witness for Christ, stand for truth, which is going to be offensive, and try to communicate what Christ has for us and hopefully people will listen and they'll live by the edicts of Christ accept the salvation and live and become a disciple now euthanasia it's defined as and this is the classical definition here I looked up the act or practice of ending the life of a person or animal having a terminal illness or a medical condition that causes suffering perceived as incompatible with an acceptable quality of life as by lethal injection, and this part I underlined, or the suspension of certain medical treatments. I believe that is a false definition. It is not the suspension of certain medical treatments because if you do that, you can allow death to just progress. You're not stopping it. You're not interrupting it. Now, euthanasia, as I would define it, it is not the suspension of medical treatment, although that's the classical definition. And by the way, those who would like to control you want to change definitions of words. They want to change dates and celebrations. They want to change all of that stuff. Euthanasia is, please listen to this. Euthanasia is the purposeful, active killing of an individual or an act that leads to the acceleration of death, no matter the reason for justification. It's an act that causes death, whether it's prolonged or instant. That's euthanasia. Now, I'm not talking about firing squad, you know, the government, and and just, again, a parenthetical thought. The government is the only entity that has been created by God that is able to kill, not murder, but kill. Now, we can kill as individuals if our life is threatened or the lives of others are threatened. God has given us that ability to do that. But as far as carrying out capital punishment, which is another subject here that I'll eventually get to, as far as capital punishment is concerned, only the government can do that. Not a militia, not a couple of yahoos that get together and say we need to end this person's life. No one has the right to do that. If anybody does that other than the government, it's considered murder. Okay, so are we clear on that one? Now, this euthanasia is also known as a mercy killing. 
that you're having mercy on somebody when you kill them. Now, it's employed to relieve the suffering, whether perceived or real, in an individual who may or may not have a terminal illness. You see, I said may or may not have a terminal illness. Withholding medical treatments is allowing the body of an individual to take the natural path to death. So that's where I separate euthanasia and this idea of letting a natural death occur. You can interrupt a natural death by the medical practices that you allowed to be employed on someone or yourself. And that's not always a good idea. We can keep people alive for a long time, at least their body is alive, when their brain is still dead. You can keep that heart pumping. You can keep air, uh, air going in and out of the lungs, the pulmonary system operational. You can keep all of that taking place. You can feed them with a feeding tube, and yet their brain is dead. I believe that's a sin to do that. I believe to keep that person here. What, what if that happened to you? What if you're in a, a state where you're just lying there, and you have a chance to go to heaven, and somebody is preventing that? Yeah, thanks a lot, you know, is what you would want to say to them. Look, look, I'm no longer here in my brain, and I would like to go to heaven if you would just pull the plug. Allow death to come. This is biblical ethics. Let the person die. But often we don't want to do that. We want to hold on to the per- They're still here. They're still warm. And I can sit with them and at least have time with them. And I believe that's a selfish motive. We're not thinking about others better than ourselves. We're certainly not thinking about a person who is in that type of state. Now this idea of pulling the plug, it allows an individual to die when what might otherwise sustain the body for an indefinite period of time while there is no brain function. That's what pulling the plug is. We do possess the ability, like I said, to keep the body functioning without the normal aid of an intact functioning brain. Now, there is this state called a vegetative state. There are different states of consciousness that we... There's probably six or seven of them that are out there. But a vegetative state is a type of coma that represents an awake but unresponsive state of consciousness. The main symptom of the vegetative state is the lack of consciousness. Now, people who are in this state, they may show unusual signs of consciousness, such as being able to speak, respond to commands, move with purpose, or avoid painful stimuli. That can happen in a vegetative state. A a person in a vegetative, vegetative state has many normal physical functions, including a heartbeat and breathing. They sleep and wake up in typical patterns. They may chew and swallow food. They may make sounds, though they don't use language. They keep their eyes open when they are awake. They may have a functional startle reflex and react to sudden stimuli around them. It's like it appears that they're there, but it's just the motor functions are working, but they're really not there. Now, this is where it becomes difficult. What do you do when somebody is like that? How do you treat the person? The person who is for a mercy killing would say, starve them and withhold water. Now, think about that a minute. What makes that person different than somebody who is fully in control of their mental facilities and you withhold food and water? What would you call that? You would call that torture, is what you would call that. We don't know exactly what happens to the person, their state of consciousness, if they're in a vegetative state, and how we can relate to that. 
But I can assure you that is not mercy withholding food and water. This is also called, and Patty and I learned this years ago, a code C. We went to visit somebody who was over at a ambulatory care and they had suffered a stroke and they were laying in bed and we went to visit them in El Cajon and this this woman, I think her name was Gladys, she was laying there, her mouth was open and her mouth was just encrusted and it, you could tell she could probably use ice chips and if she'd be responsive or not, you could grab her hand and she would react a little bit. It was kind of like a vegetative state and so I went out and I asked the nurse, I said, do you have any ice chips or anything that you know, we can just kind of wet her mouth, you know, it's just like encrusted. And they said, no, it's code C. I said, what's code C? Withholding food and water so that you hasten the death of the person that is on the bed. And this was, what, Patty, 25 years ago? At least. If I hate to see what it is now. Let me put this little shot in the IV, right? We'll just accelerate this thing. Do you think that might happen? Well, maybe. You can't point to it for sure. But the justification for doing this type of thing, these are the justifiable facts that are out there. The quality of life has degraded. Get rid of them. Or how about, it's a financial burden. Oh yeah, it will be to take care of somebody in that kind of state. It is a physical hardship for the family or the family member who is the caregiver. Will it be? Yes, it will be. Or an insurance company will not cover the cost of care. So we need to get rid of them, right? You know, Sweden, I think it was Sweden, that conquered the idea of people having Down syndrome. You know how they did it? They aborted them. So they have zero people, children with Down syndrome. I think it's Sweden. They got rid of it. That is just a heinous crime. I mean, if you ever have met, you know, we used to have Love Up Ministries here and there was a lot of people that came that had the Down syndrome and they were just the most lovable, kind, happy people that you would ever see. And they'd come up and they'd give you this bear hug and, whoa, dad, it's good to see you. And they'd be laughing and, you know, they're just so full of life. And they're human beings. That's who they are. And yet we're treating life in such a way that it's discardable. You know, if you go over to Europe, in Europe they have these pods now that you can go into this pod and it will put you to sleep and it will kill you. If you're, you want to just settle in there, hook yourself up, and you can do it all by yourself. Boop, 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 and you're dead. That's the way it works. They're trying to make this easy. Now, there's also this closely related assisted suicide. Let me give you this story. This is a real story. A Vancouver woman who went to the hospital seeking help for suicidal thoughts has revealed how the staff suggested euthanasia. The latest sign at the Canada's assisted dying program is out of control. This, this article writes... Catherine Mentler, 37, who suffers from chronic depression, told the Globe and Mail that she went to Vancouver General Hospital in June for helping with debilitating feelings of hopelessness and suicidality. So what did they say? Would you like to commit suicide? That's why she went there, was to be treated for these thoughts of having suicidal tendencies. And they said, well, would you like to commit suicide? 
I, I can't believe where I was. Now, they later had to go back and, and apologize for that. We don't go to the hospital as a place to die. We're supposed to go to the hospital as a place to help us get better if we can. Now, in the United States, how many states do you think have authorized or made legal assisted suicide? I'll list them for you. As of April 27th, 2023, Washington State, Oregon, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Vermont, Maine, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., and Hawaii. And there are 12 more states considering the legislation. So in, in this state, if you want to die, just show up to the hospital and say, I want to die. And they probably won't question you too much on it, and they'll assist you in dying. Now, should we as disciples of Jesus ever take steps to actively hasten or speed up the process or the onset of death in an individual? Should you ever help people die when they want to die? Or should we ever intervene and actively accelerate that onset the same question, but just worded a different way. Or should we ever cause an individual to die more quickly by employing proactive measures rather than letting the person die through natural causes? All of these are the same question. Is there ever a case in the Bible that gives insight as to how we are to treat those who are going to die, but death is prolonged, delayed, or protracted? I'm going to say that one again. Is there ever a case in the Bible that gives insight as to how we are to treat those who are going to die, but death is prolonged, delayed, or protracted? The answer is yes, there is. And next week, we're going to go into that scripture. And we're going to look about euthanasia, actively killing somebody who is dying, and what that result was. And now, if you think you know what that is, Good, read up on it, go to it. But in lieu of that, just be praying about this subject. Do we pull the plug on people? Do we actually, are we actually supposed to help them die quicker? Or what about the person who says, yeah, I've got this terminal disease, I'm going to stop eating and drinking. What do you think about that? That self-suicide, that's what that is. I'm going to dive into those questions next week as well as capital punishment and sexualizing our kids and just all of that. We need to know how to respond to this. These are contemporary issues and we need to be able to speak like Jesus would speak on any one of these. So let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks that you have given us a mouth and a mind that we may speak coherently to those people who don't understand your will in this world. And may you give us, Lord, just the information, the basics of what we need to understand in order to communicate your truth in a lucid and succinct way. May we not fail in accomplishing this, Lord, because lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. And I know, Lord, you want to use us to affect the change in the lives of people. So use us, Lord. We submit to you and to the promptings of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.